And another thing And another thing Welcome to another episode of And Another Thing podcast. As Jody would say, this podcast sets the bar. Uh, he will not be joining us today, but I'm very uh, glad to be one half of the dynamic duo, and we've got a great guest today, so it'll all work out well. We should uh, start by thanking our sponsors, uh, starting with uh, John Mutton and Municipal Solutions, Ontario's leading MZO firm. Great for development approvals, permit expediting, planning services with municipalities, engineering and architectural services, mi minor variances and land severances, and building permits. For all of your municipal solutions needs, go to municipalsolutions.ca and John and the team will help you out. I should also uh, mention that uh, we have a terrestrial radio partner that is Hunter's Bay Radio in Muskoka. And every Saturday morning, this podcast is repeated, as well as many other fine podcasts. They've got a whole morning dedicated to podcasts. You will find us and others there. If you uh, can tune into 88.7 FM in the Muskoka area or go to uh, huntersbayradio.com. And we also have a new sponsor today. Uh, keep this uh, website in mind, theharrislegacy.ca. Uh, and the, this is about a, a new book that is coming out about uh, Premier Mike Harris, uh, uh, who was a Premier from uh, 1995 to 2002 in Ontario. And the, the premise of the book is that we're living in Mike Harris's Ontario today. So it'll give uh, you, the reader, an opportunity to explore the Harris legacy uh, and uh, have uh, various reflections by various authors on uh, basically Mike Harris as a transformational premier. Uh, the essay contributors include David Frum, Jack Mintz, Gord Miller, David Hurley, and more. It is edited by Alistair Campbell. You can pre-order before October 1st, and your name could be drawn for a signed copy. So go to theharrislegacy.ca to order yours now. Uh, our guest today is Adam Chapnick. He is a, a teacher of defense studies at Canadian Forces College and is the author of Canada on the United Nations Security Council, A Small Power on a Large Stage. Adam, welcome uh, to our show. Thanks very much for having me. So uh, obviously the reason that uh, I invited you on this podcast is for very infrequent times in, in Canadian politics is foreign policy and defense policy, national security, right up there uh, in terms of top of mind stories. And we, see, we seem to be living in that world now. The, in the past uh, uh, few days, obviously, uh, the uh, Canadian Parliament resumed and um, uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, had a bombshell awaiting, uh, saying that the, he had credible evidence that the Indian government was behind the assassination of Hardeep Singh Nijar, uh, who was a Canadian citizen. This, this is a, a killing that took place in June in Surrey. And so we find ourselves in a uh, major diplomatic dispute with India. Uh, at the end of the week, uh, as a bookend, um, 
Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, addressed Canada's parliament. And so Canada-Ukraine and, and the Russia-Ukraine war was top of mind. And of course, uh, also last week, uh, the government of Canada started uh, its uh, work uh, via an independent commission on uh, allegations of Chinese electoral interference by the Chinese Communist Party in Canada. So Adam, uh, you, you must feel... I mean, these are all very serious things, uh, very serious, but <laughs> in a sense, foreign policy is top of mind these days. What, what were your reactions to these stories? Oh, so three different stories, uh, three different reactions. I, I don't think that Chinese electoral interference was a surprise. Uh, what was surprising there to me was the way that our national security establishment seemed to be... Uh, a little bit less organized than it usually is. And that, that was disappointing. And there are a number of reasons that might have happened, but that, that was a little bit surprising. Uh, the Indian case uh, is frustrating, uh, very frustrating. At the same time, I'm of the school that India has never been a potential great ally of Canada anyway. So for me, I mean, this is a terrible story, but I don't think it changes nearly as much about the trajectory of Canadian foreign policy as, as some folks are making it out to be. Uh, what was refreshing about Ukraine is that all parties stood in the same place, unlike our, our ally to the south that is beginning to divide on support for Ukraine. So it was, it was a relief to see that Parliament seems to be standing firm on Canada's support for Ukraine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, turning to back to India just for a second, because I, I am interested, uh, I know you're not an India expert, and uh, I want to predicate it with that, but uh, it is kind of the, the large new story. But you're quite right in the sense that we've had our ups and downs with India in the past. People forget that uh, we had, I don't know whether we broke off relations or had very strained relations uh, decades ago when we uh, had deployed our nuclear technology for uh, s- safe purposes of nuclear safe nuclear nuclear reactors in India, the Kandu reactors, and India exploited that to explode a nuclear bomb, and uh, that was uh, kind of a, a real nadir of Canada India relations decades ago. So we we've had our ups and downs before. Is that right? Yes, I mean that that is the worst of it. But uh, I gave a a talk. At- at Global Affairs a number of years ago about the UN, and I had trade reps who came to my talk, and, and I said, you know, I'd, I'm glad that you came to hear me, but why are you here? And they said that Canada's um, opposition to India getting a permanent seat on the UN Security Council has hindered relations with India forever, basically. That, that it's, it's a top foreign priority, foreign policy priority of India to get a permanent seat on the council. Canada is among a group of countries that is actively opposed to that and as a result, it's almost impossible for trade relations to move with India. And they said this to me a decade ago. Well, uh, I think that uh, proves the point that it's been uh, been rocky uh, for a good deal of time. Do you, obviously, this is a multifaceted story because India's beef with Canada is that uh, we have been far too tolerant of violent extremist elements uh, seeking uh, a Punjabi independent state, uh, Khalistan, it would be called, uh, breaking away from India, seceding from India. Uh, And uh, that has been a major um, uh, irritant from the Indian side. So uh, do you see any any chance of a quick solution to this issue right now? 
I don't because there's an, there's an ongoing investigation. And during an ongoing investigation, uh, the Indians can claim uh, plausible deniability. The Canadians can claim that there is evidence. We just can't reveal it. So I think for now, at least we are at a stalemate. Uh, it's it's disappointing because if the Indians have nothing to hide, they should be saying we fully support a Canadian investigation to get to the bottom of this and to demonstrate that India had nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. The fact that they aren't saying that, it, it complicates things. But I really do think it can only get worse diplomatically right now through what they call tit-for-tat diplomacy. Uh, India will process visas more slowly. Canada will do something, will have to respond in some way. Uh, it can, I don't see how it can get better right now. And that's another good point because there are real, um, real life implications for this. Uh, uh, people seeking visas to come to Canada, Canadians seeking visas to go to India, uh, trade relations. Uh, they Obviously, there is a uh, Canada-India uh, trade mission uh, to India that has been postponed. So this is not just a diplomatic farce that's going on here. Yeah. One, one of the great things about Canada is how diverse we are. One of the challenges we have in international relations is that any dispute with basically any country is going to reverberate at home because we will have people who either are from that country or have relatives from that country, uh, which make us makes us more susceptible to uh, diplomatic back and forth, uh, sort of petty punishments to, to make a point. Yeah. And this is another thing that people are observing. I think Obviously, uh, as a former politician, I've been aware of uh, diaspora politics, as it's called. Uh, is this a real impediment for our foreign policy, do you think? I think generally it should be a huge advantage. Uh, the cultural intelligence we should be able to gather because of the diversity of our population, the connections of our po population should be a net positive. Our ability of our intelligence agencies to recruit sources from a variety of communities, uh, uh, of cultural communities, should be a net benefit in the grand scheme of then gathering intelligence from around the world. Uh, that said, it, it, the benefit isn't free. It does come with potential costs that, that folks here can be vulnerable if they come from countries that are willing to kidnap or threaten their families uh, and, and on and on that way. Let's broaden it out a little bit uh, because you uh, obviously have done a lot of thinking about Canadian foreign policy in the United Nations and elsewhere. What what do you see as some of the opportunities for Canadian foreign policy and some of the uh, the things that are holding us back? I think that we have a, a tremendous opportunity in the long run in critical minerals. Uh, we have them. If, if we can get them out of the ground in a manner that that is legal, fair, and just uh, in collaboration with Indigenous peoples, I think we, we provide all of our allies with a significant benefit and, and a way to avoid the dependence on China that China is trying to create around the world. So I, I see uh, terrific potential there. Uh, we have some potential in terms of our openness to immigration when some of our allies are a little bit more hesitant, gives us something that differentiates us. Uh, in terms of challenges that we're facing, there was a norm until maybe 10, 15 years ago that if larger powers get in a fight, they don't take it out on middle-sized states like, like Canada. Uh, they might take it out on smaller states, but not on middle-sized states. Uh, I think the Chinese and the Saudis uh, have broken that unspoken rule, hmm. and that makes us significantly more vulnerable 
to sometimes conflicts that are outside of our our control. I mean, the Saudis was was within our control to a degree, but the conflict with China that led to the two Michaels was outside of our control. And if the rules of international diplomacy have changed for the worse, we as a relatively smaller country in terms of our power are now much more vulnerable than we were before. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. And uh, really, uh, the United we've we've had a during the Cold War, had the advantage of uh, being protected by the U.S. And, and its foreign policy goals. But that, that seems to be on the wane right now. I think that the period before President Biden was somewhat exceptional in that I think um, um, the American foreign policy establishment generally understands that it's in America's national interest to have a good relationship with Canada. So I think that depending on who is uh, who becomes the next president, we may be okay in terms of our, our relationship with the Americans. I mean, I'll even note on this this India situation that when folks started saying that America was not supporting Canada on this, so the, the Biden administration came out twice and said that's not true, right? And, and allowed information to come out that Canada got some of its intelligence from a Five Eyes ally, right? And the only Five Eyes ally that likely was able to produce that kind of intelligence was the United States, not so, New Zealand. Yeah, definitely not New Zealand, uh, although they, they remain an important ally and, and a valuable partner. Sure. Uh, sure. So, so I, I'm not as concerned about the relationship with the United States, at least right now. But I am concerned with with the idea that if if non-allies of Canada don't find us useful, it, it will be it, it, they may find reasons to think that they benefit from taking out their frustrations on countries like us. Mm. And that isn't helpful. That isn't helpful to us. And there's, there's only so much we can actually do about it, which right. is the most frustrating part. And uh, we've got some vulnerabilities, including the Arctic as well. That's, uh, that's an area that has increasing uh, large power interest and uh, declaring of, uh, of interest and goals. So this is, this is something that should concern it, should it not? Yeah, I, I think we're now that every Ar every Arctic Council state except for Russia is going to also be a member of NATO. I think that that is going to help us on the diplomatic front in the Arctic and, and on the security front in the Arctic, as long as we do our fair share. Uh, we we've traditionally talked about doing our fair share, but we usually end up doing the bare minimum or just right. enough. And we may have the the uh, the bar for just enough is probably going to rise. I, I would suspect over the next few years. Well, let's let's delve into that a little bit more uh, since you've you've brought up NATO because that's been one of the uh, continuing um, messages that we get from our NATO allies and partners that Canada isn't pulling its weight. Is is that a fair accusation to make? I think there there's some fairness to it and some fairness not to it, some unfairness to it as well. Okay. Uh, there, a book came out about the history of Canada and NATO by a couple of people who really know what they're talking about, Joel Sikorsky and, and uh, Joseph Jocko, a couple of years ago. And I read it. And every chapter from the 1950s on is a story of the United States and some of our allies, other allies complaining that we're not doing enough in NATO. Hmm. So the, this, the, the complaining about Canada not doing enough in NATO is persistent and it's everlasting and it will probably always be there. So at one level, it's nothing new. Uh, at the same time, if you pledge to spend 2% of your gross dramatic, domestic product on defense, and if you pledge that publicly and then you don't do it, uh, your allies have a right to criticize you for not keeping your word. Right. Uh, at the, so fair to criticize. Now, if we asked any of those allies, would they rather have us 
at 1.3, then work with some of the other countries that are over three, uh, one country of which uses most of its NATO spending to to deal with Turkey. Uh, They'll they'll genuinely quietly say, yes, we know that your 1.3 is worth a heck of a lot more. Mm. Uh, We're also the seventh biggest spender in NATO. So it may only be 1.3, but given the the wealth in our economy, the 1.3 goes a lot further than some of our allies' 2%. Right, Uh, right. So it goes both ways there. Yeah, and uh, and we obviously have we do have some NATO missions in in the Baltic states and Eastern Europe. So there 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 is something going on with Canada's uh, contribution. Yes, and no one no one ever complains about our troops. Uh, There's never a complaint there about their leadership, their professionalism, their engagement. They are usually caveat free, unlike the some of our our fellow militaries. So we never have complaints with the folks that we send. We just usually hear you aren't sending enough or send them with more equipment. Right, right, right. So uh, as a foreign policy observer and writer yourself, what what should be some of the things that we try to project in terms of our foreign policy in the future? That's a great question. Uh, I'm going to spin it a bit because I think we should simply project less, which leaves us more flexibility when we're asked by our allies to help. I, I think in Canada, we have an, a quasi-obsession with showing leadership in world affairs. And there isn't a, a direct relationship between the amount of leadership you show and your successful pursuit of the national interest. What we're trying to do is promote, defend, and secure our national interests. Uh, doing that when you aren't a great power requires a great deal of flexibility mm. and the ability to respond positively to your allies when they ask. If you spend a whole bunch of diplomatic and possibly also fiscal capital looking to lead stuff, there isn't much left when your allies come asking for something else. And really, it's it's our big allies that determine where our foreign policy is going to go. I'd prefer that we remain flexible, stop looking for places to lead and start looking more for places to be helpful and keep our word and be consistent. Are there particular things that we shouldn't be doing that we're doing now then? Uh, given how little we commit fiscally to international affairs in general. It's hard to say we should stop doing particular things because we we do so little in general. But looking for signature initiatives, uh, that I don't have a lot of time for. My fear if I said there's something we shouldn't be doing is it would be replaced either by no spending or domestic spending. That it wouldn't be replaced by keeping something in your back pocket for when your allies request some help. Um, you're obviously teaching students at the college too. What, what, what's their perspective on all of this? I think we get a, a range of perspectives from the, the folks that I work with, uh, intermediate and senior level military personnel. There, there isn't a, a group think among the military personnel that, that I teach. So uh, <laughs> the, the spectrum that you hear in the, in the popular media is covered by the, the folks that I work with. Interesting. Uh, and these are people who've obviously chosen the military as a career. So uh, would you find them idealistic or are they pragmatic or a little bit of both? I think that anyone who is willing to accept unlimited liability in support of their country is by definition idealistic. Mm. I, I don't think you can't be in and, and put your life on the line and and put the stress on your family of doing what, what these people do. So right. I, I, idealistic, basically automatically. Yeah. Interesting. And are they becoming, uh, are they reflecting the diversity of the country more and more too? Slowly. 
gradually, but right. but it is uh, and the effort is there, and and hopefully there will be results over time. Interesting, um, Adam. What uh, I guess as a final point, because we're getting uh, close to the end of the podcast here, but uh, from your point of view, are you optimistic about Canada when it comes to the this turbulent? turbulent world that we find ourselves in or, or, or would, would yours be a message of concern about future danger? I look at this from a, a historical point of view. And what I see there is that every number of years, somebody tells me this is the most dangerous the world has ever been. Uh, you know, to me, uh, when the nuclear, when atomic weapons were launched in Japan, that was pretty scary. Yeah, uh, I don't know if we. So I think we tend to exaggerate how different the present is from the past. My only fear, if I'm going to be scared right now, uh, I'm fearing uh, the political trajectory of the United States. That because we need America to be our loyal, reliable, dependable ally. Uh, there really is no way forward in foreign policy without that. Now I believe the Americans are the most resilient society in the world. So I am very hopeful that they can dig themselves out of this. Uh, but if my fear, it, it's there. Because to me, uh, the liberal democratic system, uh, if put up against any other system, is go- it, we, will, we will survive. We will do fine. Uh, our biggest threat is from within. If we undermine yeah. our own system, uh, then we may not be able to compete. Otherwise, generally, we have competed well and we will continue to do so. And to that extent, are you concerned about again turning returning to this topic of foreign influence? Uh, the uh, at least uh, Russia uh, and uh, China, perhaps Iran and others, do use social media to try to uh, promote their own propaganda view of the world. So, is that something that concerns you as infecting our political system here in Canada? Yeah, I think they got a head start. And what I mean by that is that uh, the folks who want to undermine us use are using a technology that those in charge didn't learn about in school when they were kids, Yeah, which meant that they had a vulnerability. My hope is the next generation will be better educated in terms of media literacy, which will make us as a country less vulnerable to this sort of manipulation. Uh, but yeah, the... the the folks who want to do bad are usually a step of a step ahead, and it usually takes us a little while to catch up. I think that's where we are right now. We're yeah. trying to catch up. Uh, a technology that was was unleashed. We underestimated its potential impact. It had a huge impact south of the border, and now we're we're grasping. But typically, we're pretty resilient, mm-hmm. and my hope is we continue to be so. Yeah, and I I just want to make this comment too because we were talking about division uh, in society, and and I guess I raised that question, but. I like the fact that you're using historical con, uh, sort of prism to to review this because there have been times in the past where Canada has been terribly divided. I think of the October crisis in 1970 as a good example, uh, where uh, you know violence uh, was was taking place in Quebec and uh, kidnappings, murders, letter bombs, the whole the whole thing. And uh, and then in the United States, one always hears America has never been more divided. Well. The Vietnam War is pretty divisive, and the Civil War killed 750,000 people. So uh, historical context is important, isn't it? I think it really is. The The big difference between now and, and before is the speed at which events happen. Mm. 
That said, we're also conditioned to work at a faster speed. So hopefully, ideally, those two things will largely cancel one another out. I, I mean, bottom line, we, we live in a society where not everybody shares our, our view of good. Uh, where not everyone shares our values. And that's that's going to be a competitive and sometimes difficult society. Uh, fortunately, uh, we live under a liberal democratic system that it seems to me is a really successful system that brings out the best. And if we can not undermine it ourselves, I think we, we have a good chance of being okay. Adam, thanks for sharing your points of view on this. Uh, we covered a, a wide gamut of issues. Uh, it just seems to be apropos given uh, the headlines in this country. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, before you go and we hang up, I do want to thank our sponsors once again, Municipal Solutions at municipalsolutions.ca. Uh, the Harris Legacy, a new book out on Mike Harris and how Ontario is uh, transformed because of his premiership. That's at theharrislegacy.ca. And again, our uh, terrestrial radio partners, huntersbayradio.com. We'll be back in just a few days. Adam, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.